the Slaughter and May podcast. Well, welcome everyone to the second in a series of podcasts where we'll be delving into the world of quantum computing. In this podcast, Rob Sumroy speaks to Dr. Ali Kafarani and Robert Hannigan about cybersecurity in the era of quantum computing. Rob is a partner in our IP and tech group and head of our technology, data privacy and cyber practices. Dr. Kafarani is a research fellow at Oxford's Mathematical Institute and the founder and CEO of PQ Shield, a British cybersecurity startup specialising in quantum secure solutions. Robert Hannigan is chairman of Bluevoyant International, a global cyber security services company and a senior advisor to McKinsey. Welcome to the second in our quantum series where we explore quantum computing and look for answers to the big questions of what quantum computers can offer to our organisations, the threats and opportunities they pose, and whether there are steps we should be taking now to be prepared for a quantum computing future. I'm Rob Sumroy, partner and head of the technology group at Slaughter and May. Thank you for joining us. This week, I'm looking at cyber, the risks that quantum computing poses to the security of our organisations and the data and other valuable assets we own. From what I understand, quantum computers could pose an existential risk to how the now ubiquitous encryption algorithms that we have uh, grown to rely on to stay one step ahead of the cyber criminals are threatened by quantum computers. I want to understand how this is and whether there's a solution that we should be investing in now to stay quantum secure. I'm going to rely on the views and insights of two experts in this area to help us to get to grips with it all. But for now, just a little bit of background. So cybersecurity is, of course, not a new concept by any means. Our clients are well used to planning for cybersecurity threats, as are we as a major global law firm. Organisations across different industries hold lots of sensitive data and information, not to mention all of the highly confidential and valuable trade secrets and business process information that would be gold dust in the hands of an unscrupulous competitor. This data has eye-watering valuations. In 2019, Ernst & Young reported that data held by the NHS has an annual value to the NHS of £10 billion. That's definitely worth protecting. But the data is also of value to the cyber criminals. If stolen and illegally resold on the dark web, the average email address is reportedly worth £84.50 over time. Another report indicates that the average October 2020 dark web price for stolen online banking logins with a minimum of US$2,000 in the account was $65. And it's not just the opportunity cost and reputational damage. Regulators are increasing their enforcement activity around cyber. You only need to look at the ICO in the UK with fines for Ticketmaster of uh, 1.25 million. British Airways had a 20 million fine and Marriott an 18.4 million pound fine. And you just see the risk of regulatory fines for cyber breaches. The facts of each of these may be different, but each had at its root a cyber attack. So in the face of all of this risk, companies invest for security and deployment of powerful encryption solutions tends to keep the potential targets one step ahead of the criminals, at least for much of the time. As many will know, encryption uses algorithms to scramble data and limits access to that data to those who have the unscrambling decryption key. These algorithms are based on mathematical functions that are easy to compute in one direction, but hard to invert. Computing the product of two numbers is easy, but factoring large prime numbers is difficult, 
especially when you're into numbers of say three or 400 digits. You just don't have the methods to efficiently solve that problem. And as I understand it, with my basic maths understanding, encryption relies on that hardness. So that's why organizations look to implement security technology based on powerful encryption tools. Okay, so why are we talking about cyber today? Because as I understand it over the past year or so and longer, there's been a growing level of concern that this encryption-based comfort may be misplaced. All of these security tools can be undone by powerful quantum computers and that a computer with the necessary quantum power is only a few years away. This threatens a huge change, or if you forgive the pun, a quantum leap in the threat and risk that cyber poses to all of our organizations. So I'm really pleased to be able to turn to two industry experts on quantum computing to help understand more about this and what we can do or should be doing. So Robert uh, Hannigan is chairman of Blue Voyant International, a global cybersecurity services company and a senior advisor to McKinsey & Co. During Robert's career in the UK government, he was Prime Minister's security advisor and director of GCHQ, the UK's largest intelligence and cyber agency. He established the National Cybersecurity Centre in 2016. Uh, Robert writes regularly for the FT and other publications on cyber and technology and is a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Centre. So it's great to have Robert with us. And Ali El Kafarani is a research fellow at Oxford's Mathematical Institute and the founder and CEO of PQ Shield a British cybersecurity startup specialising in quantum secure solutions. A University of Oxford spin-out, PQ Shield is pioneering the commercial rollout of a new generation of standards-compliant cryptography solutions that are designed to protect organisations from the biggest threats of today and tomorrow. Ali is a former engineer at Hewlett-Packard Labs with over a decade of academic and industrial experience. So thank you to both of you and welcome. I feel that the, the, the questions I've posed will hopefully be answered today for all of us. Can I start, and maybe Robert, I'll turn to you first, to ask you what, if anything, is particularly new or concerning about the threat that quantum computers pose to, to data held by our clients? Well, thanks, Robert. I mean, I thought you summed it up nicely. Uh, and it, cryptography and encryption are scary subjects for most people. Um, but I, I think the concepts are really quite straightforward, actually, and it goes back a couple of thousand years when people have been trying to protect their information from uh, the wrong people and make sure it gets only to the right people. And up to about 100 years ago, that was all about languages and linguistics. And in the last 100 years, it, it's now about maths as, as things became mechanised. And this really is the age of mathematics, which is why it's great to have Ali here um, to, to answer the questions. And essentially what has happened is that in order to protect information, you're setting very, very tough mathematical problems, which are not necessarily insoluble, but would take a very, very long time to solve unless you have the keys. That's the, the founding principle of modern cryptography, I would say. And um, it, that's a really important lead into your question, because it's all about time in a way. No a cryptographer sets out to have encryption that can never, ever be cracked uh, in the in the fullness of time um, it's about making it completely impractical to decrypt it in any useful time scale so i'm sure ali will talk about rsa and um 
uh, how you measure that difficulty. But essentially, we talk about we measure the difficulty in bits. So the length of those prime numbers you were talking about, um, for example, and prime mathematicians love prime numbers for for reasons that you you, you touched on. But yeah, you know, in current in current standards, for example, your Gmail is encrypted to a level which most researchers and I guess. Uh, Google themselves would say would take sort of 8,400 years to decrypt with um, usual computing power. So if you can suddenly shrink that time limit, that becomes a real problem. And if you saw the headlines about what Google, for example, were claiming that their uh, breakthrough in uh, quantum computing could do, reducing a process that took 10,000 years for a uh, standard computers to 200 seconds whether or not you believe that and there's lots of academic debate about that that's the scale of the problem you're shrinking that time um, that is key to the cryptographer's art if you like uh, and maybe that's the point at which it's best to hand over to Ali because uh, I, I think um, that is the challenge for me is how do you how do you get around that yeah, thanks, Robert. I think that he beautifully answered the question. I'm not sure what what to add here, but I'll, I guess I will I will go back to to how he introduced the um, history of of cryptography and how it started. Right. So yes, it is it is as as old as 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 humans like what, trying to hide information, and at the very beginning, thousands of years ago, until recently, pe- what people used to do is to hide the method that they are using to hide the information. So they were hiding both of them. And then it wasn't until like 1883 or something around it where Kirchhoff's principle, you know, uh, happened. And which, which says that you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't hide the method. You only need to hide the information. And if you hide the, the method, then it's, it's breakable. At a, at a high level. And then, of course, Claude Shannon's the father of information uh, security uh, or information theory also says that, you know, you should expect the method to fall into the enemy's hands, right? So that's, this, is, this is how it started. So now we moved from hiding the method, hiding the information to just hiding the cryptographic key. So now it's, it's time where math started being used. Now you're using mathematics to scramble the data like you said how you do it. Uh, basically use some mathematical you know, methods, permutations, substitutions, etc. In symmetric key style to encrypt data and use the same key to decrypt the data. Then comes the next problem. How can you distribute this key? This key distribution problem was only solved in 1970s. When RSA became a reality and GCHQ was also working on similar problem and developed something similar to RSA, perhaps before RSA. And also when, when, time, uh, when, when Diffie-Hellman, which is the main key exchange protocol that is being used in, you know, over the internet and, and cybersecurity nowadays, uh, was, was developed. So that, the second problem was how to distribute the cryptographic keys. And this is the exact problem uh, that we'll be focusing on today. Because now you want, to, you want to send Robert a key that he can use it to encrypt data to you. And you're the only one who can actually decrypt it. So now from the concept of having one key, we're moving to a concept where we have two keys. One that is a public key that you can, you feel confident saving, you know, sending it to Robert over insecure channels. 
and one that you keep for yourself so that you can decrypt. And here's the mathematical function that you mentioned yourself in the introduction, which is the one-way function. We call one-way function. It's easy to compute, hard to invert. So you apply the one-way function on your secret key and you get the result as a public key. You send it over the insecure channels and because you're, you're, you're sure that nobody can invert this function in any reasonable time, then people cannot get your secret key back from the, from the public key. That's, that's the problem that we're solving uh, today. Now, you have to define the complexity of these mathematical problems. When you want to say how difficult it is to solve a certain problem, you have to define the computing model that you have. Which computing model? Are you using you know, you, you know, your brain and uh, pen and paper or using a, a mechanical machine or a digital machine or a quantum computing? Because these are different things, right? And it so happens that the very mathematical problems that we rely on uh, uh, these days or we've been relying on since 1970s, which are namely integer factorization, which is the factorization of a big composite number into prime factors, and the problem of uh, the, the discrete logarithm problem. These are the main problems that RSA and Diffie-Hellman uh, key exchange rely on. They are uh, very difficult to solve, very time consuming to solve on uh, uh, conventional computers, on Turing machine like computers, but they happen to be easy, easily solvable on a quantum machine because it's a different computing paradigm. It works differently. It's got this spooky effect, right? how it stores data, it's different, how it processes data, it's different from, you know, superposition to entanglement to quantum interference. Um, this whole concept of quantum computing makes, uh, you know, uh, uh, solving these problems uh, an e a lot easier problem for quantum computing. How to solve it, we're going to talk about it, I guess, uh, later on. But um, the, the other points are, yes, they are widely used, RSA and Diffie-Hellman. These are the main algorithms that we rely on. Every time you, uh, you, know, you visit uh, your, your bank account over the internet, you open the web browser, you're actually using RSA and or Diffie-Hellman. Every single time you do, you're doing this, every single time you're using your you know, bank card, in an ATM machine, you're authenticating yourself, you're using some forms of those cryptographic operations. So that's really fa fascinating background uh, to, for both, but particularly Ali, it's interesting what you're saying that these two methods or the algorithms, uh, which are ubiquitous, so every time we're, we're using systems that we trust, I mean, the, the, the global banking system is an example of that, we're relying on these, and yet what we're hearing is that new technology through quantum computing could put those at risk. And, you know, with my sort of legal and regulatory hat on, I know that, you know, regulations that organisations have to comply with, like the privacy regulation, the NIS regulations around infrastructure security, all require that organisations put in place technical and organisational measures to protect the data and the systems. And if these methods that we are relying on, like RSA and, and others, are now vulnerable, then actually our organisation's not actually doing enough to implement. So that's, I think, what we need to move on now, which is to ask the question, which is, you know, what... Well, I think actually first I'll, I'll ask, before we, before we talk about what organisations should be doing, let me just ask one other thing for both of you, which is, you know, we've got clients across all different sectors 
is the threat the same across them all or are some people more vulnerable than others, would you say? Or, or, you know, is this something that applies really regardless of whether you're a financial institution, utility company, retail company or the like? Well, I I would say that, of course, uh, any serious company or organisation is using a form of RSA and is using high-grade encryption. Of There are some other things available, but I mean, as Ali has set out, this underpins... Uh, everything we do, all commerce uh, and all business, and it is why the public key cryptography breakthrough, which, as he said, first happened in GCHQ, <laughs> a good shout out for the UK, um, is so fundamental. It's changed really 2000 years of cryptography because you don't have to kind of get a key to the other person um, uh, physically. But I, I would I would answer your question by saying it depends what data they've got. So assuming everybody's got a high level of encryption, and RSA has got better over the years. So it's not that it's static. We've improved it. We've made it tougher. But it really matters what kind of data you've got. So some data is uh, ephemeral and frankly, doesn't really much matter if somebody can read it next year or the year after. Some data is not ephemeral at all. And it will really matter if somebody can read it in five, ten years time. So one of the reasons why uh, governments are so uh, concerned about this is that if you intercept data at the moment, it's going to be unreadable very often. It's going to be a line of dots and ones, ones and zeros. But you can store it away until quantum arrives and then decrypt it. So it, in that sense, it's a, this is a current problem. And I guess the answer to your question is, if you're a business, you need to think through the data you hold, um, as you should be anyway for cybersecurity or GDPR or all the other things you've mentioned, including the NIS directive, think through with, with this, with encryption in mind or decryption in mind, I think, well, what is the data that we would really worry about if it is taken now and decrypted in, who knows, three, four, five years time? Um, that's the worry. And for governments, especially, there's a lot of that data, but also uh, aspects of financial services, healthcare, for example, anything to do with um, safety. You know, there are plenty of sectors where they would not want data from now to be uh, decrypted in five years' time. So that underlines, as you're saying, Robert, the point that this is a here and now thing, even though we hear that, that quantum computers or the powerful computers we need to, to, I suppose, decrypt are not going to be available yet. The point is it's a current threat because the data will still be valuable in the future. Exactly, exactly. So, so probably worrying about how to use a quantum uh, machine in your business is some way off. And in practice, you'll be contracting that out anyway. Most businesses will never uh, have a quantum computer themselves, but they will use the service from one of the big providers. But that's something you can worry about you know, in the, the medium to long term. The encryption problem, for the reasons Ali set out, you have to worry about now, really. So... Should we look at then what companies can be doing? I mean, both from a sort of a practical perspective in terms of services that are out there, tools that are out there. I know, uh, Ali, you know, that's what PQ Shield are, are, are working on and, and Robert, you advise on. So, so, you know, practical suggestions as to what we should be doing at the moment. So um, I totally agree with, with Robert. He touched on very important points. And I think that um, the problem that is now uh, defined or uh, known as harvest now, decrypt later, um, is, is a well-known problem now, right? So this is one of the uh, uh, huge impacts of quantum computing on our current public key and cybersecurity infrastructure, right? 
So the quantum attack wo works retrospectively in the sense that, yes, we don't have access to a quantum computer now, but we have access to encrypted data. Anyone can intercept any connection and, and download any encrypted data. And uh, if someone is really interested in your data for any reason, whether you're a government, whether you're a healthcare provider, whether you are, uh, you know, an OEM who holds lots of IPs and uh, who wants to protect uh, their IPs, a lot of angles that can be looked at. Uh, people will be interested in downloading and, and, and storing your encrypted data and decrypting them once they have access to a, a quantum computer. So that's one angle. And the other angle, be, because they are relevant uh, to who should care now. And, and the other angle is the, the you know, uh, lifespan of your products. It's often the case that cryptography is embedded and hard, uh, hardwired inside your, inside your products and or deployed in, in the in, in fields or in the space where you cannot actually go and update the hardware. So if it's actually a hardware crypto, then you should you should think from now in if you're taking, you know, security by design, then you should uh, 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 actually take into consideration the upcoming standards and develop uh, your products that can be uh, that can actually uh, use and perform and compute the the upcoming standards. So these are the two angles that you want to look at where, you know, uh, in terms of hardware and in terms of, of confidentiality problem. And the problem you said that who should, you know, which companies or which corporates, uh, which categories of companies should, uh, are, are more vulnerable. And the answer will be, the problem is a lot of those companies don't know where they're using their cryptography and why they take it for granted. Because things happen, you go to your ATM and you just put your uh, uh, your card there and, and you get money or, or you pay or etc. But you don't know where you're using crypto. Inside big corporates, old corporates, it's a lot bigger, the problem, because they have lots of legacy crypto that they need to replace. So the first thing that we advise as a, as a PQ Shield, as a company specialized in post-quantum crypto and, uh, uh, you know, involved in the new standards that are being written at by by NIST in the in uh, within the U.S. government is to have this cryptography inventory to understand what crypto you have and why you're using them. What are the regulations that you are complying with? Yeah, I think that's a great great point. Uh, and Ali's too modest to mention that he's involved in some of these standard development for for the U.S. and U U.K. So, uh, and that will have a huge impact because quite soon, uh, governments and big corporations will be choosing uh, the standards they want to follow. And in practice, everybody's going to follow, particularly NIST in the US. Um, and regulators will follow that. So at the moment, we're encouraging everyone to improve this, the standards of their crypto in new devices, as Ali says, to build in security by design. That's a new buzz phrase in cybersecurity for governments and to regulate that. And we're seeing more and more regulation in nearly every major jurisdiction about minimum standards of security and crypto. Uh, and there's a slight danger that we completely miss the boat here and that we, we end up um, with a good move towards better regulation of minimum standards, but we, we, we adopt the wrong standards. So it's almost inevitable that regulators will start to insist on quantum safe uh, encryption standards because particularly for anybody, any sector that is serving governments, I think that will be critical. And that's most sectors, frankly, um, for the US and the UK. And even I think 
people like the Information Commissioner's Office, of, Office for GDPR will start to say you should be using this standard uh, and you should be using it now and not, not in five or ten years' time. So that's, a, I, I think, a key point um, that, that is difficult because, as Ali says, people don't always know what crypto they've already got and trying to get your head around that is, is difficult. And all I'd say is you need to do both. You kind of need to think about now cybersecurity. You need to do all the minimum things we've been telling people to do for years. <laughs> Not everybody's doing. But you also need somebody in the organisation to be thinking about the five, ten-year timescale. And thanks, Robert. I'm glad you mentioned the, the, and introduced the concept of, of the new regulation and the regulators because, you know, from my perspective, scanning the horizon for what we're seeing from uh, governments, uh, for example, you know, the UK data strategy, which is, you know, out for consultation, mentions the importance of having secure infrastructure for data and similar messages coming out of the EU, but there's no specific reference in any of that to quantum. And I and, and, and so it's interesting to hear what you're saying that, uh, and, and I think good news, that the governments and the regulators will follow the science and the technology. So the standards will be improved and the regulation will be developed from those standards. I know, um, Ali, uh, that, that you've got some involvement with the World Economic Forum um, and obviously they, their Centre for Cybersecurity published a report at the end of last year um, which uh, uh, looked at you know, the issues arising from quantum technology in this area and identified a number of major challenges, I think, as solutions. Clearly, you know, the publication of, of principles and standards to pr promote um, better use of quantum, but also to get better um, standards around quantum security, I think, was, was one of the key areas there. I don't know if you can give us an insight, Ali, on, on some of the work in that area, which might lead to regulation in the future. Absolutely. I, um, yes. And I will actually give you a little bit of an update on what's happening uh, within NIST uh, when it comes to the standardization process. So this started in 2016 uh, following a, uh, um, an announcement from NSA uh, where they, um, they said that quantum risk is, is a real risk and we need to, to mitigate against this risk. And NIST shall follow with a standardization process of what we call post-quantum cryptography. Basically, rely on different mathematical problems because this is going to be also a question uh, uh, related to how, like, what can we, how can we use quantum computing in a constructive, uh, in a constructive way? And, and the answer will be like, quantum computer does not do magic and cannot solve every you know, difficult problem. It can solve some problems a lot faster than uh, conventional computers, but not every single problem uh, that we have today. Uh, so what we do with, with uh, the new standards is that we rely on different mathematics. That is not easy to solve on quantum computer. That is just as difficult to solve on a conventional and on a quantum computer. And that's what it's called uh, post quantum. That's the field in cryptography that is called post quantum uh, cryptography, and that is being standardized by by NIST. Started twenty sixteen. We're now in the final phase. It was announced in uh, back in August uh, twenty twenty. Yes, they were still working within uh, during COVID NIST, so they've done an amazing job. And now we're like a year uh, away from announcing the results. So a year from now, uh, now we've been talking about RSA and Diffie-Hellman and elliptic curve cryptography. In a year from now, there'll be no new acronyms that we will have to get used to. They might be ANTRU or FALCON or DILITHIUM or KYBER. There will be new acronyms. And the thing is, with post-quantum cryptography, there are five different mathematical fields. So we're moving to a slight, like, 
I wouldn't say slightly, it is a more difficult uh, uh, field in, in cryptography because it's more diverse, relies on different mathematical problems, namely five different mathematical problems, and they're not as trivial as discrete log logarithm problem and, and integer factorization. So we're moving to um, a more engineering challenging problems and security problems that we're, we're tackling there. And now you think about it, so uh, there will be standards that would rely on different mathematics. And not only you need to know uh, what crypto you're using and why, then there will be new standards and you would need to understand, so which algorithm sh should, I, should I use for this use case or for that use case? And so that's that's the the problem, and these are the things that were mentioned in the in the report. Uh, the point that you touched on that I want to 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 say, and it's very relevant to Robert, is that governments, um, maybe the governments in 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 um in some sections are not aware of this, but the likes of NCSC and BSI and NSA are are very well aware of of uh the quantum threat and post quantum, and and Robert can tell us more about this. Well, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, governments are not always the first off the block in, in technology, but in this case, they are for the obvious reason that you raised earlier, Rob, which is um, criticality. So if, you, if you're encrypting nuclear submarines or the nuclear firing chain, it really, really matters if, if this can be decrypted in, in, any, in any reasonable time space. And there's a whole other range of government sensitive data that including health data, that people don't want to be available in five years' time. I think the interesting um, follow-on from, from um, Ali's point is that the, the supply chain is also going to be at risk. So it's, it, it's all very well for, the, for the, um, the maker of the nuclear submarine, which itself has a massive supply chain, to say, well, I'm going to change my crypto to the new standard. But actually, what about the whole ecosystem around it? So this does affect pretty much everybody. Um, because they either have data they really, really care about and don't want to fall into the bracket we talked about earlier as being available, or they're part of a supply chain which does. And governments are going to have to become increasingly careful and frankly paranoid about what crypto they allow into their networks. Fantastic. Well, I'm really sad to say that we're running out of time. Um, uh, we could, ca I would definitely carry on this conversation for a lot longer, but I think I, I, I probably just need to um, pause us there and say thank you very much for your time. Um, we've, we've probably got chance for, for, for each of you, if you've got a sort of a final thought in this area for, for, for 30 seconds or so. Um, I don't know if you want to, you know, certainly a message to leave with people listening about about quantum, we've we've heard obviously that it's a present threat, not one in the future, uh, um, and that governments are working um, with the mathematicians by the sound of it to find the right solution. But but Ali, Robert, any sort of last thoughts before we before we have to finish? I would just say, don't leave it uh, uh, till the last uh, minute. It's uh, it's really important to get ready for the new standards um, now, because it's happening now. Yep, I agree. And yeah, clever maths, even cleverer maths is the answer to this. And there is an answer, which is the good news. So we have a kind of vaccine here. Um, and it, it, it's a, a good time to get consultancy on it um, for somebody in the organisation to start thinking about the practical implications. Brilliant. Well, thank you both. I, I know we had planned if we had time to talk about some of the more uh, positive use cases that maybe quantum computing will be put to within organisations, although I'm happy to say that's the theme of our third podcast, which we're going to be uh, recording uh, shortly. So just to, to, 
to both of you, to Robert Hannigan and to uh, Dr. Ali Al-Kafarani, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. And hopefully we'll get together again in months to come to develop these thoughts further. Um, thank you uh, to those who've been listening and joining us. If you'd like to hear more on the subject of quantum and other technology and digital topics in our Horizon Scanning series, please do visit the Slaughter May website at slaughterandmay.com forward slash insights. But from all of us for now, thank you very much and goodbye. So tune into our next podcast where we will be speaking to Alexei Kondratiev of Standard Chartered Bank about some of the vast opportunities presented by quantum computing. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.